I'll do it over. We'll start it from here. <laughs> okay. Welcome everyone to our podcast, the first episode of our podcast that we're filming. And my name is Ryan. I'm here with my co-host Levite. We are both people who work in the social justice industrial complex and our podcast is all about talking about and discussing and trying to figure out that the social justice industrial complex, the, the industry we both work in. Welcome, everybody. And on this episode, we're talking to Freddie DeBoer. Freddie is a very, I think, well-known writer on the left and, you know, at least the radical left in North America. And he has a Substack, Substack which is just Freddie DeBoer. Freddie spelled with an IE, dot substack.com. Back in May, Freddie had written on his Substack an article called The Gentrification of Disability. I read it, Levite read it. We both uh, were really impressed by it. We had a lot of thoughts about it. Um, it's not unique in Freddie's body of work uh, for being something that is both really original, but also really lucid and where, you know, thoughts that you've had are kind of articulated more clearly and more memorably by, by Freddie than, you know, one yeah. will probably be able to do on your own. I really, really felt so incredibly lucky to talk to Freddie yesterday. Um, like you said, he's got, he's such a, um, eloquent way of saying things that I wish I could say. It is controversial and it's an uncomfortable topic for, I think most people for good reason. It should be uncomfortable because it is, I, I, what I want to clarify is like what we're talking about is a last resort for people who are at like the very last margins of, you know, mental illness and severe disability. So Freddie DeBoer, thanks. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Livy, do you want to maybe kind of start with talking about why we wanted to have Freddie here? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I just found your piece really meaningful, um, specifically with, um, the type of work that Ryan and I do, um, working with, you know, really vulnerable communities that are really um, suffering. There was not one part of what you said that I didn't agree with literally 100%. Like Daniel Bergner's piece in the New York Times, which was sent to me by multiple people um, asking me what I thought. And I was like, this is such bullshit. Um, and so deeply... Um, dangerous and irresponsible to write a piece like this. So, um, yeah, so that's why we really wanted to talk to you. Yeah. Maybe just to kind of start. So the, 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 the piece went up on your Substack a couple of weeks ago and what, what has the response been like? There's um, it, been a big response. It got a lot of views, uh, at least in the context of my newsletter. Um, I got, uh, I would say it's three quarters very positive and another quarter very negative. Um, the most obvious thing is that I, I, I can't tell you how many people uh, have emailed me to say that um, 
they themselves uh, suffer from a mental illness, a serious mental illness, or they have a family member who suffers from a serious mental illness, and they were happy to read what I wrote because they feel very deeply alienated because what of what has become of um, the culture and philosophy behind mental illness in the United States right now. And, um, uh, I, and you know, the people who were mad were mad for predictable reasons. Um, <clears throat> they endorse that sort of ideology. Um, I think one thing that maybe I should have done a better job of and, and will do a better job of right now is there, there really are two sort of distinct communities that I'm reacting to that share a lot of overlap, but I think that you should sort of see them in two different ways, which is <clears throat> there is the anti-psychiatry movement, which is decades old. Um, it's larger than people think. Um, it uh, has considerable influence in a lot of places. Um, <clears throat> so uh, the single most, uh, the you know, uh, mental health expert who has been, um, served as an expert witness in more trials than anyone else in psychiatry is uh, someone called Dr. Peter Bregan, who is sort of, if the anti-psychiatry movement has, a, you know, one champion, that's him. Um, he's someone who thinks that um, quite explicitly that psychiatric medication is inappropriate in all uh, uh, contexts and for any reason. Um, <clears throat> he uh, is a very prominent online community around him. Um, and so he's the most cited legal expert on this topic. And he is someone who was part of, you know, what the anti-psychiatry movement's most sort of cultist sort of element to me. So this is like a mainstream phenomenon, which is something that I constantly have to remind people of. There's a sort of anti-psychiatry movement, which goes back to Ken Casey and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Thomas Saz. And, um, <clears throat> but there's also now a sort of a social justice element to this, uh, which is, there has been a co sort of coalescing of various strains of academic <clears throat> disability studies ideas, which center on the idea of the validity of the individual and things that they feel, and that um, <clears throat> the urge to correct mental illnesses is in some ways to demand that people be untrue to themselves, et cetera. So those things are overlapping, um, <clears throat> though separate. Um, in any case, um, you know, one of the things I have to keep telling people, people you keep saying to me, oh, you know, you're just mad about teens on TikTok or being annoying. Uh, this is just an Internet phenomenon. And that is not correct. Like, I, I, I will insist that that is not correct. I have been in psychiatric treatment of various kinds for 20 years. And the fundamental approach, um, the, the vocabulary, the, uh, the ethos of what I'm experiencing um, from doctors, in institutions, in group therapy, in one-on-one uh, -on -one therapy, in support groups, is, is quite different. And there's a lot of people who are very alienated from this. And the core of the alienation is they or their loved ones have had their lives repeatedly deeply damaged by their mental illness and the relentless insistence that there is something more valid or more real or deeper about the uh, mentally ill self is uh, insulting to me and insulting to them. And so I was happy to hear from so many people who felt the same way. I just want to let you know, Freddie, that like that is so something that mental health professionals are experiencing a lot in the field as well, especially when you're working with the most sick, as opposed to like, you know, what we call the worried well, right? right. Um, so a phenomenon that my team has been experiencing quite a bit lately are activists filming 
when we do an involuntary hold, um, demanding private health information of the people we're working with, um, calling it carceral psychiatry, which is the, is the word that they use now, um, putting their information on the internet. Um, and just, it's, you know, deeply humiliating uh, for the people experiencing it, which I, you know, I try and explain to them, this is like literally the worst day of their lives. Why would you do this? Um, deeply humiliating and, and unfair to the families of people who are suffering. And, you know, the, the, the individuals that we work with are, um, they're very much languishing, um, like because of their, their, their prisoners of their own delusions, right? Um, and I, they, they kind of romanticize the illness that they have, like, just because they don't live the way you want them to live, you're going to punish them. This is another form of punishment. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really frustrating. You know, I think one of the things that, um, the ways that this sort of enrages me the most is that this ideology helps to contribute to the perception that the problem with psychiatric medicine is there's too much of right? That too many people are getting treated. Whereas if you have a job like you have, right? Um, you are well aware that the problem for the vast majority of people is inadequate access to medicine, right? It's not that they're being over-treated. That is not a problem. So just to throw a few numbers around, two-thirds of psychiatrists in the United States don't take Medicaid. So <clears throat> you're saying the, the poorest people uh, who, who have Medicaid Good luck. Um, uh, better than 40%, more than 40% of practicing psychiatrists in the United States don't take commercial insurance at all. So if you have Aetna through your employer, uh, better than 40% of practicing psychiatrists don't take it, right? Because if, I'm not sure if people are aware of this. As a general statement, psychiatric medicine in the United States is rich people's medicine. There's an entire constellation of treatment and facilities and doctors that exist purely for those who are affluent enough to access them. Um, <clears throat> also, a psychiatry, like a lot of medical care, is deeply geographically concentrated in a few places so that something like two-thirds of counties in the United States of America do not have a single practicing psychiatrist. Right? So... Right off the bat, and, and, you know, and you can add to this, you know, all of the various vagaries of the American uh, medical system writ large, right, and the med medical insurance system. You know, I, you know I, I, I tell people this all the time. Um, the concept of go get help, right, you need to go get help, implies that there is some place that people can go to to get help, right? And I, and I have to constantly let people know there is no magical facility where you can show up and say, I'm having a psychiatric crisis and you can be assured to receive appropriate care that won't bankrupt you. Um, many of the state mental health facilities have been shut down through the process of deindustrialization over the last 50 years. Um, even those state facilities, you know, so in my hometown in Connecticut, there's Connecticut Valley Hospital, which is like the big psychiatric facility in Connecticut. Um, you can't just walk up to the door and say to them, I'm sick, I need help. And they'll say, oh, come on in here. It's, you need a referral. Um, uh, oftentimes needing a referral requires going to the uh, emergency room. You will be forced to pay for that visit. Okay, If you go to an emergency room 
and you don't have insurance and you say, I, you know, I, I'm in desperate psychiatric conditions. I need to go to a facility. Um, just that, that ER visit will be in the thousands of dollars out of your pocket and you will be billed, billed for it. Um, <clears throat> people are very afraid of being involuntarily committed. So oftentimes they won't pursue that because that's uh, much more likely in the scenario where you're going to an ER. <laughs> it's also the case that um, there's many documented cases of people who were involuntarily committed and their insurance company still declined to pay for the charges. So you get sick, you get taken to the ER, you are declared to be a danger to yourself or to others, you go into a facility, and hopefully in that facility you receive the care that you need, and then when you emerge and you're ready to begin your life again, you discover that you have a $30,000 bill from your stay at that facility. Right? So conceiving of the problem as being a problem of too much care in and of itself is a lie and it's a destructive lie um, and one that makes me very angry. Um, and uh, I mean, the thing that always gets to me is I am very well read in criticisms of psychiatric medicine, uh, medicine. I'm deeply aware of the philosophical backings of the anti-psychiatry movement. And there are absolutely, I myself have experienced lots of things that are wrong with the system. What bothers me is how many people are convinced that the system is wrong, but can't articulate anything like a coherent evidence-based critique of why that is, who don't know what they would put in its place. I mean, this is, a, you know, I've made this challenge to people before. Go out and invent a psychiatric medication, like make one up. Go out into the street and pull people and say, hey, here's this psychiatric me medicine, you know, fake effects or whatever we want to call it. Is that overprescribed? I guarantee you large majorities of people say, oh, yeah, that stuff, it's, it's terrible, right? Because it is so deeply ingrained in people, like this idea that um, psychiatric medicine is bad and destructive. And um, all of this is happening in the background of conditions that, by their nature, make many people treatment adverse. And so it is just powerfully unhelpful to the, the most vulnerable to be creating this culture that insists for based on nothing that we have too little psychiatric medicine when in fact many, many people die because they never have access. <laughs> yeah, all of that, um, something I see on the, on the ground daily. I mean, it's so, it's so very, very real. I, in fact, what's so crazy is that we actually have to work on sometimes keeping our clients uninsured. Like we won't sign them up for Medi-Cal because we have special contracts. We, I work for the county and it's, it's too, it, Medi-Cal is so shitty that like it's better for them to be uninsured to receive the level of care that they need because they are so, you know, greatly disabled and, you know, destitute. Um, so it's like almost like no insurance makes things less complicated. I I can't help but think that like some of this is actually by design from kind of these big insurance companies or like to take to take the heat off of us to actually create a system of care and mental health infrastructure for people who really need it and to just excuse it as like well, you know, you, who are you to judge the way that these people live? Um, so to keep people from having access to care, to keep people from making these kind of structural changes in the way that people receive care and access to care, it's almost like these people who have these ideas are kind of feeding into this plan to just make it unavailable and keep things the way they are, status quo. Yeah, I mean, and I don't even know that we need to like posit like a 
maybe explicit conspiracy. It's there's no doubt that um, <clears throat> psychiatric patients offer a strange profile to uh, insurance companies. Where <clears throat> on the one hand, there are few, you know, genuinely ex expensive. Um, operations, so to speak, within psychiatric medicine. You might get ECT, um, you might get transcranial uh, magnetic, uh, whatever it is, the transcranial thing. Um, but even those aren't that as expensive as like getting soldier surgery or something like that. Yeah. Um, so the, you know, the, the short term individual costs um, uh, tend not to be that high. Um, I mean, most patients receive talk therapy if they're lucky, and group therapy and a uh, an antipsychotic in, in an inpatient facility, and are then, you know, have uh, uh, weekly psychiatrist meetings in which they might transfer to a different trans, you know, eventually to a different drug, etc. Those things aren't particularly expensive. The problem is, is that there is at least a perception that ment mental health care is chronic lifelong care. That, in other words, the guy who gets soldier surgery, that's going to be tens of thousands of dollars out of the pocket of the of the insurance company. But once he gets soldier uh, 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 shoulder surgery, you know, he'll get some fairly cheap physical therapy and then he's done. He does not have a chronic rest of his life problem. Um, the perception certainly is that people who have serious mental illnesses are cursed to have them their whole lives. Now, that's actually a misconception. So I, this is another thing I point out to people all the time. Um, a majority of people who are treated for serious mental uh, illnesses have a, a period in which they are so, uh, they're struggling in that way. They receive care, they receive therapy and medication, and they are gradually transitioned off of that and they go into remission and they never have another problem again. So, and I think this is like it was super important for people to understand. For most people receiving mental health care, it works the way that any other medicine does, which is that you see a doctor, you receive appropriate care, and then eventually you transition off of that care. You know, the, the large majority of people who take antipsychotics don't take it more than for a couple years at the most. Okay, I'm not one of them. I've been on antipsychotics off and on for 20 years, and I've been on it consistently for, for five years. Um, and there are there are people like me who have chronic problems. But defining mental health care as something that you are cursed to have to do for the rest of your life in a way that's not true if you break your leg, um, I think is unhelpful. But certainly that's the perception. And so you have the idea of, number one, we know that mental health uh, care patients, um, for a variety of reasons, have lower incomes, have less steady uh, employment, um, <clears throat> are more likely to be unable to pay co-pays, et cetera. They're also perceived to be people who will be in and out of institutions for the rest of their lives. It's just not a very attractive prospect compared to a lot of things. And then, again, there is this whole, um, you know, sort of system of white glove psychiatric medicine, which almost none of which takes insurance, where which is very appealing to the doctors uh, who do it because they can charge a lot of money and they generally don't work with the most violent patients, the most disturbed patients, the most difficult to treat patients. So I was in a psychiatrist's office once and he, there was a bunch of brochures around and there was a, um, <coughs> uh, a brochure for a facility that, um, I mean, you know, in addition to like the tennis courts and the pool and stuff, it advertised 24-hour concierge service for patients, right? Um, but it yeah. said very, it said very clearly on the brochure, you know, uh, we take no insurance, right? Because they they don't, you know, they, they don't want those patients, right? It's like the the whole point is to screen out 
the transient patients, the homeless patients, the patients yeah. that who have, um, you know, comorbidities of alcoholism or drug addiction or whatever. So, yeah, it's, it's just it's not a population um, <clears throat> that is particularly attractive from the standpoint of uh, insurance companies. It's not a population that's particularly attractive from the standpoint of doctors. You know, I, I've often complained about getting therapy as someone with a psychotic disorder. Um, look, therapists fairly say that it's hard in general to charge insurance for them, that they don't get paid adequately by insurance. And that's a whole thing for anybody. Um, therapy is, I, I'm in New York City. It's like the heart of therapy world here. And yet I can never find a therapist. It's such a hard, hard time because um, you have to find someone who is on your insurance, who is taking new patients and who can see you in a, on a, in a schedule that works for you. But the other thing is, is that a lot of therapists just don't want to work with patients with psychotic disorders. And what they will always say is, um, and I've been told this at least a half dozen times in my life, we think you should find a therapist who's, who better fits your needs, right? Um, because there are people whose experience is in, you know, uh, divorcing housewives with depression or kids who uh, have ADHD and need uh, Adderall or whatever. Um, and I appreciate them trying to find the best doctor I, I can find. But there's just so many people in the therapy profession who just don't want to deal with a psychotic disorder. It's just not, they just, they just don't see any upside to it. Um, and, uh, but they will charge my insurance after the, our intake appointment, by the way. Um, so yeah, there is a, the, the, there is just, is not a structure in place um, to make the sort of transitions from emergency acute care to long-term care that should exist. And part of the tragedy here is, you know, I, this is something that I think is one of those things like I wish was taught in, in high school history classes that wasn't. But, you know, we had a deinstitutionalization de movement in this country. So, um, in, uh, so, so the, in 1963, the last major law that John F. Kennedy ever signed um, was a big omnibus health care bill. And um, it began the process of deinstitutionalization. And it did so, I mean, look, there were very, some very bad conditions at a lot of the major state hospitals. There were people who were being warehoused there who were not being routinely assessed for whether they were ready to return to the world. There was inadequate uh, services for them. Some of those places were very bleak. But as, as is so often the case, you know, they, they began the process of dismantling the institutions and they didn't build anything um, to replace it. So, you know, the, the, the bill itself says, um, you know, we're going to build community health, mental, mental health centers everywhere. And those will be these, these sort of go-betweens and they'll function as a sort of in-between space between acute care and going back home. Um, and of course, um, they just, they did close the institutions, but they never built the community health centers. I mean, even in that bill, I mean, they only set aside $130 million for the creation of a nation of community mental health centers, which even in 1963 dollars, it's a very paltry sum compared to what they were closing down. The, the belief was, well, if we close down the local and state institutions, that money will go, will go to the community. But of course, that's not actually how it works. So there's just, I again, like, um, I think the average person believes that there is some such place that you can just go to and receive mental health care when you need it. And that just literally does not exist for many people. And um, where to take someone who really needs the help uh, is a, a, you know, a powerful problem for a lot of people. I, yeah, like it's probably like a lot of things, probably better up here, but still wildly inadequate. I used to do 
kind of the public disability benefits cases where you're trying to get somebody on it. It's like, I think it's like social security disability in the U.S. kind of. And we would often have clients who have mental health issues and they've just been diagnosed by their family doctor. And like the application package is supposed to kind of include specialist reports or whatever. And it would just say, you know, waiting for a psychiatrist, referred to psychiatrist, waiting for the psychiatrist, you know, or referred to psychotherapy, which I don't know if that's like a thing in the U.S., but like it kind of, you know, they're like non-medical therapists and, and like a lot of them, then they don't take insurance. The public health system often doesn't pay for it in the same way here. So you would have, and then you'd get to the, the hearing where it's trying to determine if somebody's going to access these benefits, which are really crucial for getting like the welfare rate is so low and it's like doubled if you're on disability. Um, so it's still abysmally low, but like it's a huge difference in people's lives. And you know, then like the, the adjudicator will be kind of criticizing the fact that it's all been done by the family doctor, but there's, yeah, there's like, you know, I, the, the stats you had about psychiatrists blew my mind. I think it's probably pretty similar here. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to take, if you're a doctor, you, you can't not, or you pretty much can't refuse to take public health care, uh, you know, which is each province has its own plan here, but I'd imagine there's a million dodges to basically operate the same kind of, white glove type practice that you were describing. Yeah. I mean, look, there, there is, um, if someone doesn't want to treat a particular class of patient, they're not going to, I mean, mm-hmm. this, this, this is the basic reality. Um, for a lot of psychiatrists, they will sort of do a early career few years in a program that really serves vulnerable populations. And then they get to graduate out of that. You know, then again, it's like, whether you're talking about psych- psychiatrists or therapists or anybody, um, I mean, you can just think about it yourself. If you were a talented, you know, young person with a degree from Columbia and you're going to be a psychiatrist or you're going to be a therapist, um, you know, uh, do you want to have your patients be, you know, successful upper middle class professionals who live very stable lives and who have legitimate problems. I would never question like the legitimacy of their psychiatric problems or what they need to work out with their therapist, but they're the kind of people who will be doing this regularly for, for, for years or decades because like they go to therapy as part of their whole deal. Or you can do patients who um, <clears throat> never have any money, keep losing their jobs because they keep losing their jobs, keep losing their uh, insurance, don't have the wherewithal uh, to uh, make sure that they can take advantage of Medicaid or the exchanges or whatever else, the affordances to get that kind of thing. Their paperwork is always a mess. You, they drop out and you don't see them for months and then they reappear, right? Like <clears throat> the barriers are there that are obvious and there's just no incentive to see them. Right. And so what you end up happening is, you know, again, like um, there, there are still state psychiatric facilities, uh, some of them, but um, you know, you had the sort of mushrooming of private facilities, which um, vary considerably in the level of care that they give. Um, But where again, like um, you got to pay or you got to go. Like, unless there is a specifically a judge's hold ordering that you be held in a facility, right? So it, it varies a lot from state to state, but most most states have a seventy-two hour hold is the is the basis of the involuntary um, <laughs> commitment sort of system. In other words, uh, you can a, a doctor can in in most places can say you need to go into psychiatric facility for three days and you can't leave. Um, 
the specifics of how long you have to stay after that and who can force you to stay depends a great deal on the state. In many places, the doctors essentially have carte blanche to keep you there. So if, if you're someone who gets into the system and you've been involuntarily committed um, uh, and you don't have someone on the outside who is like really advocating for you and getting on the phone and showing up to the facility and saying, where is this person? What's the treatment plan? When can they get out, et cetera? Um, it's very easy for, in most places, for you to just sort of get rolled along. Now, I say all that as someone who, I had my life saved by a voluntary commitment, right? Um, and I think that we, again, like, I think that it is wrong to say that, um, I mean, I guess what I would say is, you know, it's always possible for things to be bad in two ways at once, right? Mm -hmm. So in other words, there is both a problem. It is true that some people um, get pulled into the system and can't get out and they don't have advocates and they, you know, they are, again, these are generally people who are just not very put together in terms of their overall grasp on life and, and self-responsibility and stuff because they have a lot of really deep problems, including mental health issues. Um, and so it can be difficult for them to get out. That does, that does happen. It does exist. But um, there are so many people whose lives would have been saved if they had been involuntarily committed. And we need to understand that the other problem also exists, which is when people know someone is a danger to themselves, but there's no legal mechanism in place to get them into treatment, right? And I don't mean to like, I mean, generally, right? This is somebody who goes and kills themselves um, because nobody was able to force them into an institution. And we never hear about it because they are, a random person with mental illness, probably a homeless person, probably a, a, a drug addict or an alcoholic. So that doesn't make the headlines. But it, you can think of two people which were, spe were specifically identified as suffering from mental illness and uh, <clears throat> dangers to others who somehow fell through the system. There was no one who could compel them to get care. Uh, one is James Holmes, who shot up the uh, movie theater in Aurora, Colorado, and killed 12 people. The other is um, uh, Sung Hoi Cho, who was the Virginia Tech killer who killed 32 people and they killed themselves, right? killed himself, right? Um, they were both flagged by people at their universities who said, this person is uh, mentally ill. They were evaluated. They were found to be considered to be dangerous. And then just nobody knows what happened, right? Um, James Holmes called uh, the a, a uh, mental health crisis line right before he he uh, shot out that theater, and he was disconnected after nine seconds. So he went and he just shot it up. Um, so these are instances of cases where other people's lives would have been saved had we had a more consistent and meaningful system that can, when absolutely necessary, compel people to seek treatment long enough that they don't take their own lives or the other lives of others. And even if we just want to think in terms of patient rights rather than other, everybody else, you know, James Holmes was a absolutely classic schizophrenic. Everything about his case fit the ideology of the disease. He developed the exact symptoms that you would expect at exactly the age when, in which this tends to happen. He was, again, multiple people in his life flagged him as someone who was starting to suffer from severe paranoid delusions. And so it's not just the 12 people that he killed and the 70 other that he shot, but he might be living a you know stable life right now rather than spending the rest of his life in a maximum security prison, had he been 
uh, had we had a more aggressive system. So I just, it's a very thorny question. Um, if I had not been involuntarily committed, I'm sure that I would have killed myself. Uh, I have often made choices uh, that are designed specifically to avoid the, the, the possibility of being involuntarily committed because uh, it's never going to happen to me again. So it was complicated. And I, 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 I totally understand people who have gone through that and are very bitter and upset about it. But it simply is not the case that we have this ultra aggressive involuntarily commitment system that forces people into care all the time because far too many people fall through the cracks. Um, yeah. <laughs> so my experience with the people that I serve is uh, because they're like basically have no support system in place of people that can advocate for them. They're basically triaged to their death. Like you said, the deinstitutionalization movement, we have no beds and we kind of triage the, the very few beds that we do have. Um, and uh, we kind of make the choice like, well, you're just a little sicker than this person. And then people will die. Like I've seen it like discharge people and they had a medical thing going on that their delusions, you know, didn't allow them to seek care and they die. Um, I used to work specifically for the crisis team. Um, that would respond to homes, people would call. Um, we see a lot of, I mean, it's just statistically like young men uh, that were kind of experiencing their first psychotic break. Um, and, it, you know, we would write a hold um, and, you know, a big barrier to care actually in that scenario too was that, you know, we would have to call law enforcement. It's just like the way it works. Um, people don't like to hear that, but it's true. I cannot you know, I show up and they look at me, they're like, I'm not going to listen to you, you idiot. You know, so, um, but more often than not is the case is that law enforcement will literally say to the person like, well, that's their decision, not ours. We think you're fine. Right. And like completely just ruin the, ruin everything, um, make things worse, escalate. I cannot, I've lost count of how many times we have had to leave homes uh, with, you know, families crying, saying like, well, you said they need to go to the hospital. And I say, yeah, I did. They do need to go to the hospital, but I can't force them onto the gurney. I I don't have that power to do it. I'm, you know, I'm a five foot three social worker. I, that's why I called law enforcement and I'm sorry that they, they just left, but you know, that's, that's kind of the trend that I see more than anything. And I mean, I would also add from long experience, um, the emergency room experience is not great uh, if you're going for mental health care. So I think another thing is like, well, <clears throat> you know, if you know somebody's in crisis, they should just go to the ER. Um, I've been in that position many times. Um, so what, you know, the, look, the, the, I got, I had to get dragged into care. I mean, literally physically um, I was uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, having a meltdown at a neighbor when I was 20 years old and the cops showed up and they took me to the ER and they stuck me with Haldol and they shipped me off to, uh, to a facility. Um, and that's how I got diagnosed. Um, there, you know, there are moments when you are cognizant of the fact that you are losing control and where you are receptive to the idea of treatment, but getting into treatment is very hard. And I can tell you that um, I, I, this, I mean, I've been six or seven times to the ER, whether it brought myself or someone by someone else. You know, the average ER does not want you there if you are a psychiatric patient. Okay, so like I, the, the ERs can be 
immensely unwelcoming places. Um, the in general, uh, <laughs> either you're in the position that I was the first time I showed up at an ER, brought there by the cops, and um, so obviously psychotic that they simply injected me with injectable antipsychotics and shipped me to a facility. Right? They like that outcome, or they like if you just if you ref you refuse care and leave. Right? Um, they tend to think that you are just filling beds for no reason. Um, triage nurses, I'm sure being a triage nurse is very hard and I have respect for the profession, but um, in general, triage nurses hate you as like an ambulatory psychiatric patient, right? This, but this happens all the time. People show up at the ER, they are on the very edge. They say, this is my chance to, solve, to save my own life. And they show up there and they meet a triage nurse who is completely disdainful of their problems, who asks them if they've tried calming down, who say things like, do you think maybe you should speak to clergy? Um, they don't think they don't want you taking up beds. And so what they do is the first thing that they often do is they'll put you on ice. Okay. So um, I have sat for in excess of seven hours in an ER waiting to be treated while people come in and keep getting shuffled in ahead of you because the triage nurse doesn't want to deal with you. And um, that is uh, valuable for them, not just because it keeps the bed open, but also because um, they're expecting you to eventually get up and leave. And if you get up and leave, then that's considered to be refusing treatment. And they're not on the hook if you go and you kill yourself, right? Like there's no, there's no malpractice risk if they just make you wait in the waiting room until you, you check out. And what's happening is everybody who goes to the ER for a psychiatric uh, uh, crisis has a voice in the back of their head saying, you're being ridiculous. This is stupid. Like you're just, you're just, you're being weak. You need to toughen up. Um, and so you have this incredibly essential moment where you're cognizant enough to know I'm losing it. I need, I need help. But there's a part of your brain that's telling you, shut up whatever, go home, you'll be fine. Um, and that that voice works on you for all those hours that you sit there. So you're there for two, for three, for four hours, waiting in an empty ER, and you're working on yourself the whole time. And so <clears throat> either you get up and leave and their problem is solved, or you go and you see the ER shrink. Again, like the ER shrink wants people who he can, he or she can, um, you know, give a shot of Haldol to and, and ship on, on the way out because that's easy. It's, it's clean. Um, if it's somebody that they have to talk to, right. And like sort of arrange like an actual care plan um, that can get complicated in terms of uh, malpractice, et cetera. So when they see you and you are not someone who is clearly about to jump off a building, um, you know, again, they play the same role, which is to sort of say, oh, you know, you look really tired. You know, have you got any sleep? You, you should, you know, maybe you should uh, ab abstain from any alcohol this weekend and uh, try to try to get some rest. Find a good friend. To, you know, they will do things that are intentionally designed to minimize your your yeah. situation, because, again, you can then you then say, OK, well, uh, I guess I was fine. I overreacted. Thanks, Doc. And they can put for refused care and they're no longer on the hook for anything. Right. Um, so you have these incredibly important moments where the ER system is just designed. They just they they want heart attacks and broken ankles. Right. Like that, that is like what they define as their purpose. And psychiatric medicine is, again, like the easiest thing in the world in the ER, because the patients are people who are so far gone that you can just stick them with Haldol and, and ship them off. Um, 
<clears throat> then let's say let's say you can get this doctor to take you seriously. They're not going to prescribe you anything, and probably wouldn't be appropriate to prescribe you anything um, that was actually going to treat your condition because they don't want to diagnose you, right? The ER shrink absolutely does not want to say, "Oh, you're bipolar." Right. They, they want that to be fobbed off on somebody else. So you can get a you'll get a referral to uh, an outpatient psychiatrist or simply a edict. Go find an outpatient psychiatrist and they might give you a, a uh, script for a mild sedative like hydroxyzine or something. So now you are still someone who is suffering from a psychiatric crisis. All the problems are still there. Um, now you have to navigate the American health system. You have to find a psychiatrist. You have to find um, one that takes your insurance. And you better hope that they have an appointment available in the next month. And often they don't. It can be months, you know. I mean, I I went to Staten Island. Uh, uh, it was in Staten Island's uh, Richmond University Medical Center. And they have a, a separate psychiatric ER. So that was nice. Um, I didn't have a good opportunity, a, a sort of ex experience there, but um, as a condition of release, they made said you got to go see our, our um, social worker. So I had to go back to Staten Island. I had only gone to Staten Island in the first place because my younger brother came to rescue me, and he got on the phone and figured out that this place would take my insurance. Right. Um, so I go back to Staten Island and I'm living in Brooklyn. And so it's a, you know, between the, the, the train and the ferry, it's like an hour and a half or more. And I show up there and I say, okay, well, well, you know, you can see one of our, our shrinks, you know, your appointment will be next, whatever. And I said, well, you know, I can't come to Staten Island, uh, every time I need to see my psychiatrist for in perpetuity, I live in central Brooklyn. It's a, you know, hour and a half journey here or else it's a $60 Uber. And they said, uh, Oh, sorry, I can't help you. And they put refused care on my thing. Right. And so there's, there's no, like, you know, like the ERs are not set up for this. The staff at ERs don't want to deal with this. And um, the transition, like it's, it's just not again, like, you can't just find a mental health hospital, a psychiatric facility, and show up at the door and say, ta-da. Uh, they'll say, where's your referral? Who's sending you? Whatever. And so just all along the chain, there are um, barriers. Um, and what ends up happening is that the people who don't receive care, because they can't get over these barriers, eventually they do get to the point of being actually actively totally psychotic and delusional. And then they do get the... Um, you know, shot a geodon and on the way to the facility thing. It's a terribly wasteful system. And there's so, so many people who get caught in that place where I am in a psychi psychiatric crisis and I know it, but it's not presenting as sufficiently um, dangerous to the system that we I get pulled into the system. And there continues to be, even among experienced psychiatrists, you know, there, there's the whole attitude of, well, if you know that you're in a psychiatric crisis, are you really in one? And the, answer to, and the answer to this, yeah, motherfucker, I know I've, I've been in one. I've been doing this for 20 years, all right? I know what this is like. I'm asking you to save my life right now. Um, it's very, very, very frustrating. So, Freddie, one question that <clears throat> I was, you know, earlier you were talking about how in the 20 years that you've been dealing with this, you've kind of noticed a, a shift, if I can mm -hmm. figure out that right. Yep. And and this kind of relates to your article, I guess my question is, 
what do you like, you know, what if it was there kind of a triggering event for the shift or is it more just like kind of a bunch of things from the other? I think it's been gradual. I mean, to, to me, right. Um, I would define the change as the assumption that psychiatric medicine has as its fundamental purpose, protecting and, uh, validating the perspective of the psychiatric patient that um, I mean, the way it's like um, the idea that what I need from my therapist is to, for them to function as a hype man for me and to tell me that everything that I feel is a legitimate feeling um, to, for, for psychiatrists to constantly tell me, you know, you know, you shouldn't feel bad about having a, 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 a mental illness. It's not your fault. It's nothing shameful, you know? Um, uh, I mean, great. Thank you. But, um, <clears throat> I don't want a mental illness, right? I would love to not have this thing. What I need is effective medication and therapeutic techniques that help me to manage it so that it doesn't ruin my life. And I am someone who is personally, um, frankly, a little insulted by the approach to psychiatric medicine that acts as if, like, um, I need to constantly be pandered to and told that I'm that I'm valid and that I'm good, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you let you let me handle my validity, right? You help me keep from becoming manic again, and once again st- coming to believe that. Uh, you know, uh, members of my family are hacking my bank account or that an ex-girlfriend I haven't seen in 10 years is putting glass in my food. Right. Like those are the, those are the sort of things that I develop over time. And it's like, um, it's just the sense that, um, <clears throat> you know, it's this is such a trivial and weird little thing, um, to, uh, to point out, but, um, I was looking at the back of a cereal box recently and it was just filled with these for no reason, these like slogans, like you're going to crush this day. You know, you're a, you're a badass. You know, you, you know, you, uh, you're becoming your truest self. And I'm like, when, when did the entire, like, when did my like management of my ego become everybody's business? Right. And I, I, it's not, and this isn't just like an aesthetic or style thing for me either, because, you know, the therapeutic process is often antagonistic by design, right? Like it is often the case that you need to be told as a psychiatric patient that the things that you believe are not correct, right? The absolute last thing I need to be told is, oh yeah, those feelings that you're feeling of absurd paranoia, right? My feelings that I'm being bugged, my feelings that I'm being watched, my feelings that I'm being followed, my feelings that people are conspiring against me. Um, those those should not in any sense be humored because they are not correct, right? And my response to them is destructive and sometimes quite violent, right? Um, but it, it's just become baked into the cake of the whole therapeutic approach now. It's just that like, People are just forever telling you you're good, you're valid. I'm an adult, okay? And I have a serious psychotic disorder. I don't need you to tell me that I'm valid, right? I need you to act as my doctor or my therapist and help me to manage symptoms. And it's a, you know, I think a a good contrast is um, uh, 12-step programs and Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, 
I have my issues with those. I did um, spend a year going to AA meetings. Um, I was never really working the steps or whatever. And it's very, I'm an atheist and it's very churchy. And, you know, there's, there's things about it, you know, questions about it. But I think a thing to like about it is that the, the whole 12 step thing is actually no, your natural instinct is not good. Your natural instinct is to be an addict. Your natural instinct is, instinct is to you know is to drink yourself into a stupor. Uh, these things hurt you and the people around you, and you must change, right? And um, and so, of course, if you investigate a little bit, you will find that there are these social justice critiques of Alcoholics Anonymous that center on this idea that well, they're telling people that they're unvalid, invalid, right? But they're not saying that they're invalid. They are saying that their instincts are invalid because their instincts are killing them, right? And I would just, but it, it, you know, it just it, it filters out into any, into everything. You know, I'm in. Um, uh, I have a psychiatrist who is a you know 35 year veteran who I love, and he doesn't have any of this nonsense. Um, I do, uh, you know, I've done th uh, therapy in recent years, including group, uh, outpatient group parent, uh, uh, therapy, which is fairly rare. Um, but those are very much this, these sort of things. I do online support groups. And look, support groups are for support. I'm not here to judge anyone. But there there just is so much of this mistaken perception that, like, the point is to validate the individual rather than to help them treat something about them that is not good. I have to tell you this experience I had last week where we were evaluating an individual that was setting fires everywhere and was as a result of a delusional process, right? He thought he was getting energy. And, you know, the prison sentence for arson is pretty high. It's a very dangerous thing to do. And we had a, this person had a monolingual in another language. And we had a translator that was, I'm a licensed clinician and they were a licensed clinician too. This person was experiencing overtly psychotic symptoms. I was watching them respond, talking to himself, laughing, pointing at things. Now I don't speak his language, it was very apparent to me that this was person was in a psychotic state. I asked the tra I, I passed the translator a note because I'm like, I'm not, you're not, I don't feel like we're speaking on the same level. I said, is this person hearing voices? Their response to me was, well, they're speaking from their heart. Right. Um, what got me into uh, treatment long-term finally after uh 15 years of um, briefly being on meds and stopping a, a very, a, a very, very common um, kind of cliche uh, bipolar tendency. I finally have gotten into treatment for the long term. And what got me there, um, this was the time when my brother had to come. Um, the reason my brother had to come was um, I had accused some, I, I threatened to kill someone in a, uh, <laughs> because I was a criminal genius. I, I put it in a voicemail, which is a, I wouldn't recommend to anyone planning on making uh, threats to do it in a voicemail. Um, so um, I, it's, it's, I, I'm, you know, I'm back on meds and it's weeks later and I'm with a, a therapist when I'm sort of still sort of therapist shopping and trying to find the right person. And this woman is just like, you know, you know, I told that story and um, <clears throat> she was like, you know, we've talked about this a few times, but you really haven't talked about your anger towards her. And I said, I was like, oh, you know, like it, it was just delusional thinking. You know, I just I I really genuinely believe that she was trying to harm me. It's very common. I think she said, oh, no, no, no. I don't mean your your anger when you threatened her. I mean, your anger towards her now for um, threat because she what, what had happened was that she had said, like, I'm going to call the cops. Like she she had she had said, like, um, 
you know, if if you do go to the hospital tomorrow, um, I might still call the cops. But if you don't go to the hospital, I'm definitely going to call the cops. So what you said. So that's what I got, you know, and I was I was literally I, I didn't have some sort of come to Jesus. Oh, I know I need treatment now. I was literally dodging the cops. Um, and so it's but this therapist was just like, you must be so angry at her for that. And I'm like, the fuck are you talking about? I threatened to kill her based on nothing. And so she said she was going to call the cops and you want me to like excavate my anger towards her? Like I'm very, very grateful to her because number one, she could have just called the cops, in which case I would have gone to jail. Or number two, she could have ignored it, in which case who knows what I would have done next, you know? But it's like, you know, and, and it's just like she was very fixated on this. And it's like, you know, like not everything I've done as a result of my mental illness is valid. In fact, pretty much all of it has been really invalid, including threatening people's lives. And it's just this just baked in sense that like if I'm in the therapeutic process and I'm telling, my, you know, telling my truth or whatever, and we're talking about it, I have to have this self-exonerating feeling of like, oh, I was mistreated. No, I, I threatened to kill someone and she responded appropriately. And I'm glad that she did because it saved my life. Right. But there's just it's, it's you know, there's just such this built in sense of like um, your mental illness comes out of you. Therefore, it is something that is you and is therefore valid and needs to be honored. And it is and that is fanning out. And again, like this is not this is not just an online thing. Like I see it more and more often everywhere within these things. And, you know, it's like that that hearing voices thing in The New York Times. Um <clears throat> You know, I don't mean to sound dramatic, but sooner or later, right, someone who needs a doctor, someone who needs, like, someone who's willing to be adversarial is instead going to get someone who considers themselves an activist. They're going to get pushed into a program like that when they're, it's completely inappropriate for them to be in a program like that. So they won't get medicated. And then they're going to go and kill somebody, right? And that person will be dead. And the person who did the killing's life will be over because they're going to spend the rest of their life in an institute. Like sooner or later, that's going to happen. And the deeper that this goes, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I push people all the time. You need to go in, you need to get medicated. You need to take your pills. Um, You know, I always tell people that I have to go really like wild contrarian counterintuitive approach to mental health, which is you should see your psychiatrist, take your pills and do your therapy. Um, and I tell people that all the time, but the, as time goes on, I become more and more afraid that they're going to find the wrong person who are coming out of these schools of social work and these and these uh, schools of nursing or whatever, you know, getting their head stuffed with all of this social justice stuff. And they're going to find the wrong person who's going to actively keep them from getting the, the help that they need. I'm so, trying not to do that. Sorry. I just want to let you know I'm actively trying to change that. You kind of anticipated a question I wanted to ask, which is like, to what extent can we just blame, you know, not maybe like blame, but, you know, like how much of this is just the fault of like academia and especially these professional schools? I mean, look, the, 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 this is one of the most annoying kind of problems, which is that I can't just get mad because I know people actually, you know, people actually think they're, they're doing the right thing. I'm sure the guy who wrote that New York Times piece is someone who genuinely, I mean, I, I think that this is all, that was all based on his experience with a psychotic brother. And, you know, I have great sympathy for that. I just think that they're powerfully irresponsible. Um, the thing is, is like, again, it is a social justice sort of a thing 
it's very much caught up in disability studies, which is this whole bizarre world. At the same time, you know, there just is this this very high level of anti-psychiatric medicine uh, sort of background radiation that exists in the United States. And, um, well, you know, I fucking hate uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, right? But, like, that sort of is sort of like the perception of um, <clears throat> of many, many people who have no exposure to serious mental illness that... Um, you know, it's actually just a bunch of, you know, misunderstood people who don't happen to march to the right beat for society and who um, uh, who don't, you know, and who need to be set free. Like, you know, um, that is very, very prevalent in America, even among people, especially among people who have no real exposure to this thing. I compared this to autism. Autism and mental illness are separate things. But I, I do think that there's this common connection. I mean, a number of the people who wrote to me were the parents of severely autistic children. One of them was a woman who said, you know, um, <clears throat> my child has to wear product protective gear at all times because if he doesn't, he repetitively tries to chew off his fingers and he has serious nerve damage in one of his hands from doing so, right? Um, and she said, and I read books about autism and all that I read are about like how this computer programmer considers it the key to his success, right? That kid doesn't show up in the conversation because a kid who's that severely autistic, who's nonverbal, can't participate in the, in the conversation. And the same thing is happening with mental illness where it's like, look, if you suffer from ADHD, I have great sympathy for you. I know it can be a very debilitating condition. I hope that you get all the treatment that you want. But like, there's this whole wing of Twitter, which is like ADHD Twitter, which is just people saying, we are the face of mental illness. And it's like, no, the fuck you're not. Okay. But those people are always going to have bigger, better ability to influence the conversation than the people. There are people, you know, I, I'm here in Brooklyn. I'm sure there's someone within a half mile who's severely schizophrenic, who's living under a uh, bridge right now and destroying their body with alcohol, right? That person is not in the conversation to say, hey, guess what? For me, this is not a beautiful journey and it's not me being my best self. I'm suffering. I I always say that the most vulnerable are consistently left out of the discourse about this and it's all these prof professionals speaking for them, right? And people who are not, ex and like, like you said, it's okay to say that you're not experiencing illness at the same level as, you know, people living under bridges that are mm -hmm. trapped by their delusions or drugs and alcohol. You're just not. Mm -hmm. And like you having like neurodivergent in your Twitter bio is not the same. And it's okay to say that. Like, it's just like, yeah, and, totally different. And I say that, look, I am a very high functioning person with a psychotic disorder. Um, I, I have had, I have become psychotic at several times in my life. I have had violent incidences. I have had long-term uh, stays in mental hospitals. I take um, a, a lot of powerful drugs, but I'm a very high functioning person. The fact that I can come on a podcast or write in a newsletter, I understand myself to be part of the high functioning. What I just demand of people is to say that like, to understand you know, this relentless bright siding of everything. Right. I think I, I, I might have mentioned this or maybe not in that newsletter, but um, you know, Barbara Ehrenreich is one of my heroes. Um, and she wrote a book called Brightside, which was inspired the fact that by the fact that she got breast cancer 
And all these people in her life were like, this is going to turn out to be a blessing in disguise. This is going to be a, you know, this is, you, this is going to be such a positive experience for you. She's like, the fuck are you talking about? I have cancer and it might kill me. Right. But there's just, there's this, uh, this American ethos of like, we just have to find a way to cast everything as something, you know, inspiring and a, a growth moment. And like, this shit just sucks. It's, it really sucks. Um, I am, you know, I am, I live with the consequences of it every day, even as I'm medicated because the medication sucks so much. The day that I went into the hospital, uh, <clears throat> I was 177. I weighed 177. Um, three months later, I was 235. Um, I, you know, my hands shake so bad. I can't hold a cup of coffee. Sometimes I have terrible, uh, memory and focus issues. Um, I have gastrointestinal problems that are often su sufficiently bad that I'm afraid to leave the house, you know, just it sucks. And, but it's still better than the alternative because the alternative is things will seem really cool for a little while. I'll lose weight. I'll be very productive. And then slowly, imperceptibly, I will start to decide that people around me are trying to impede my amazing plan that I have some sort of that I meant for something more. And that the, the only reason I'm not doing it is because, you know, my girlfriend, she's up to something. And that's and then I become a violent and scary person. Right. And so I, I can't, that can't happen. And I don't like there's just nothing good about it. And I don't I, I don't need anyone else to bright side it for me. There's got to be a way that we recognize people's humanity without, you know, infantilizing them or romanticizing the pain that they're in. Um, I see this a lot also with people experiencing like extreme poverty, <coughs> living in squalor. You know, it's like, you know, you don't just, you can't walk in and judge how they live. Who are you? Who are you to decide um, that, you know, this person who's like living on the street and shitting on themselves you know, that's their, that's their alternative life choice. And what do you know about it? You know, like it's, I don't understand how the two are mutually exclusive. Like it is because I see their humanity that I know that they deserve better than this and that I want to give them the ability to live a safe and happy life. You know, I, there is a thing, I, I, I do think that there's this weird way in which it might be like the, the influence of the internet or something, but like, I think people feel the need to sort of construct a self out of a set of attributes that are very sort of discreet and easily sort of translated to other people. Um, because, you know, in real life, you can actually like, get to know someone, but online, you just have to have like these avatars of yourself that sort of say, here's who I am. Like, here's the thing. <clears throat> One of the weird, weird little changes in it. Look, I'm not judging and whatever, whatever helps them. But, you know, in my bipolar support groups, um, nobody just wants to call themselves bipolar anymore. Um, like when I first, like in a group therapy in within institution group therapy perspective, typically you're, you're just thrown in with everybody. Like I, I've never been in like a bipolar specific, um, group uh, in an institution. It's, you know, people who are on the ward, whatever, you know? Um, so you might have like schizoaffective and schizophrenic and, you know, um, <clears throat> but like in bi these bipolar specific spaces, like, you know, when I started, you often wouldn't even say bipolar one or bipolar two, even though the distinction has existed for a long time. Now I, I do my support groups and it's like, 
when people do the their opening introduction, it's like, um, I'm bipolar with psychotic features. Um, I'm bipolar with ultra rapid cycling. I'm bipolar plus mood disorder, otherwise non-specified. Um, I'm bipolar dominant, schizoaffective. It's like everybody has to have like their own flavor or whatever. And um, I understand it, but it's like, I think it, it, it speaks to sort of saying like this desire to see yourself as your, um, as your condition. And I, I have no desire to see myself as my condition because it's the worst thing about me. And it's, you know, I'm very, come very close to ruining my life on multiple occasions. I've noticed a lot where people who are clearly high functioning, they have, you know, like good professional jobs, public profiles, you know, um, I'm sure that like everybody, they have their troubles, but, and they will identify very kind of forwardly and forthrightly with like such and such mental health condition. I guess the question is, do you think anybody is kind of claiming something that they don't really have, you know, kind of like stealing valor uh, or kind of cloud chasing? Like, do you think that's a phenomenon going on in the professional classes at all? Could be. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, the th- I mean, you can't like you can't operate that way. You, I mean, I, I think as a, a, a on a, a, a level of just being basically humane and compassionate, and, and also um, you know from the perspective of building a healthy uh, community for people who suffer from these things, I think that you can never. I would never accuse anyone of that. Um, <clears throat> and I always take care to say that, like I re- I respect the fact that you know so many people have. Uh, anxiety and depression that sounds awful to me man i mean that that seems like a really terrible combination that must be awful um my issue is not that people are actively faking and it's not even that people are sort of dominating the conversation based on you know disorders i find frivolous or whatever my problem is it's like this stuff shouldn't be aggregated in the first place um so uh, I wrote something and I talked about neurodiversity and I included mental illnesses and um, a bunch of people complained and said, that's not what neurodiversity is. But in fact, according to the person who invented the term, it was d- designed specifically to be as inclusive as possible. And there's all sorts of official organizations who use that. Um, and so again, like these parents of kids with severe autism, I mean, you know, there's a whole uh, you know, like one half of kids with uh, uh, serious autism um, have debilitating uh, seizure disorders as well. They're extremely commonly comorbid with each other. Um, seizure disorders that can, you know, um, dictate what they can and cannot do in their lives, even apart from their autism, whatever. And you have uh, a lot of autistic people who are totally nonverbal, who never speak or write in a day in their life, who can't control their own bathroom function, etc. Um, to me, those things should just not be aggregated with a programmer who sometimes can't look people in the eye and feels out of step in social situations. Um, and it's the same way with this stuff where it's like I respect and, and value, you know, your OCD and your need for treatment. Um, there are some, some good drugs for OCD. I hope that you're on them. And uh, I know that it must be difficult for you and I, I want to help make your life better. It does not make any sense for you to be participating in a, a conversation about, for example, um, people with severe schizophrenia, right? I mean, like, it, it, there's a whole class of people left out of this, too. Like, this, just, just, not to make the conversation too long, but, like, um, negative symptom schizophrenia, which is 
people whose schizophrenia does not represent itself as um, being actively delusional and outwardly, you know, um, energetic and all that stuff, but just the opposite who are are very, very withdrawn, who move slowly, talk slowly. Sometimes they, they reach states of actual catatonia where they're, they're, they're basically unmoving whatsoever. That's like a, like a really significant portion of the schizophrenic um, population. Right. Um, How can they live with the voices? Right. Like, like it's, it's, what you're saying, if you're saying that they're going to go completely untreated, is like so they can live with the voices. Well, they're not living with the voices. They're just withdrawing from life entirely. Like, are they are they part of your thing? These, it's just you know, the, the, this urge to say all things are the same thing is just not useful to me. Like, we all have very different conditions, and they have different etiologies and require different treatment plans. Yeah, um, most of the people I actually work with are negative symptom people suffering from negative symptoms because they're gravely disabled. Mm. I mean, no one, nobody includes them in the conversation and not because they can't. It's, I think sometimes I wonder if it's just too difficult to, 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 to see, um, you know, these are people who will not eat. And I've literally seen people who haven't moved and their arm is like black from lack of circulation and like, amputation like mm-hmm. that's that's what we're talking about you know and it's just not the same thing it's just right. simply isn't and mm-hmm. it needs and i and like you said two things can be true at once your pain is valid your experience is valid but let's not equate the two it's just not the same but i mean i think it also gets back to this you know the romanticization of mental illness in american life which is like um you know uh Angelina Jolie's character from Girl Interrupted, right, is someone suffering from a serious mental illness, but she's very glamorous and cool, and everybody on Tumblr wants to be like her, right? So, um, you know, that vision is, of what mental illness is 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 very overrepresented. Um, it does not look cool to be someone who has been in an institution for 30 years, who sort of sits sort of mutely in a corner and has to be taken into the shower by staff and who, you know, can barely feed themselves. That's not sexy or cool. And so it's just written out of the conversation. The people that I serve will continue to suffer. There'll be people coming in between me and the help that I'm trying to give them. Not that I'm so special, but just at least some attempt to allow them not to die a painful, slow death on Mm -hmm. the street. Um, You know, because you don't, it doesn't look the way that you wanted it to. I'm sorry, this, you know, I've literally had activists tell me, well, this is triggering to me. This isn't even about you. This is, you are not in this. This is, what about the person that is experiencing this intervention? Is it triggering to you if if I let them die? We had a person who had a a gangrenous infection that needed to go to the hospital. We were actually in the street with a psychiatrist, which is very rare, I'm sure, Mm. you know? Um, the psychiatrist said, this person I think is going to die. Like they need to go now. And it took a forced intervention. Someone literally said, well, I am so triggered by what I just saw. I said, what? Right. Would you have been more triggered if you had tripped over her body right. when you were walking down the street? Freddie, maybe this is kind of like a overly broad question and, but what would you want to change, right? You know, for people who are coming out of social work schools and, you know, other things, I think even law school, even education and stuff like that as well. I mean, what, you know, what would you kind of want to dispel or what, like, would you want them to kind of like think about differently, you know, to, to 
produce better outcomes for people who are living with really severe mental illness. Well, I mean, one thing that would have been great is if the community mental health centers that have been envisioned in, I keep, keep forgetting the name of the bill, but then the big omnibus 1963 mental health bill, um, you know, that would have been, uh, you know, a place to go where unlike most ERs, they would take seriously crisis level mental health situations that are not yet to the point where the person is so actively delusional and psychotic that um, it becomes appropriate to forcibly inject them. Right. Um, you know, uh, the, the, it's widely um, surmised that uh, uh, <clears throat> John, JFK was moved to sort of participate in this because he had a younger sister um, who was clearly suffering from some sort of developmental or cognitive disability from a very early age. And this is, you know, the era of the Blue Bloods where nobody talked about anything and they're the Kennedys. So her parents had her lobotomized um, and it um, <clears throat> destroyed her. I mean, it was a lobotomy, destroyed her ability to function, whatever. Um, and, you know, um, <clears throat> and he felt, you know, a personal desire to sort of uh, fix that and respond to that. Um you know, which is which is nice, but it's just it's so profoundly American to think we're going to close this solution, this broken solution to the problem, and then we're going to have faith that the other solution is going to pop up. Um, I think mental health care is, uh, you know, some of the be best bang for your buck that you can get in terms of like paying for itself, because um, so often these things represent themselves as um, as crises that are harder to solve, right? The farther down the line someone gets, again, like a, if they have a gangrenous arm or whatever, um, that's more expensive eventually to, to treat than if they are being adequately treated for their psychiatric problem and they can then say, oh, hey, I have infection, I should get some antibiotics. Um, some sort of third space. There needs to be a third space that is not a, um, a an emergency room uh, where the doctors uh, would really rather not have to deal with you. Uh, and, but that also is not a long-term care facility. Um, I have been in a half dozen uh, psychiatric uh, facilities in my life. Some are better, some are worse. None of them are pleasant. Um, sometimes the wardies are really nice and collegial. Sometimes they're assholes. It all depends. I don't, it does. And it, I don't think that it is um, like, I'm, I'm not convinced that you can sort of, legislate sort of kindness and compassion into those places. But um, it would be nice if there was greater consistency from state to state in terms of uh, how the involuntary uh, commitment process works. I also think it would be great if states actually did an audit and said, is any of this actually happening? You know? Um, I mean, you talk to people and it happens all the time where they say, you know, I was sort of told I couldn't leave. I never had a hearing. They never kind of told me when I would get out. They didn't tell me how who I can talk to. They didn't tell me how to talk to a lawyer. And then just one day they were like, oh, yeah, you know, you can leave anytime you want, but we think you should stay for a little while. Like that, that is a very common experience where there just literally is no delineation of rights like that. So I think that's important. Um, and in an ideal world, everyone who called themselves an activist would have to spend time working in a hospital for those who are severely mentally ill. Right. Um, would have to watch people who struggle to feed themselves, clothe themselves, bathe themselves, to observe people who um, have some sort of defect in their brain that makes them um, constantly self-injurious. Right. So there are people out there who 
just if you let them if you just let them out they're going to kill themselves because they just constantly hurt themselves people who cannot stop flying into psychotic rages it's a thing that happens right it exists um you know i so i would love that but absent that i would like to get real about the fact that um people do oftentimes uh, become violent as a result of mental illness. So this is one of the things that um, drives me crazy, which is like, it's, it's, you know, you go onto like lefty Twitter. Um, it's completely uh, off limits to say, uh, sometimes people have mental illnesses that compel them to act in a violent way. Um, even though we know that is true, and we've known that to be true for thousands of years, this has become a very uh, controversial thing. And saying those things, because that stigma we don't stigmatize. We don't want to stigmatize anyone. Um, <clears throat> you know, uh, so they'll, they'll throw stats around like, um, well, you know, men the mentally ill are more likely to be the victims of violence than to commit violence. That's true. Uh, what they don't mention is that that's literally true for everyone because um, violent crimes are caused by a very small percentage of the population. So uh, it's true for any class of people that you can name that they're more likely to be the victims of violence than to commit violence. Um, it is certainly true that it appears to be a small minority of people with psychotic disorders who act out violently, but they, they do exist. And um, I would argue that um, denying that fact is, number one, just denying reality. And again, go spend time in a psychiatric facility, okay? And you will observe people who uh, have to be restrained because they will kill someone or themselves if they aren't restrained. I mean, I'm sorry if that's damaging to your feelings. But I also think it's really important to recognize that because, like, you risk degrading one of the few things that we do in society for people with severe mental illness, which is providing legal accommodation for the things that they do under the influence of their disorder. I mentioned James Holmes before, right? Killed 12 people. Um, <clears throat> he uh, pled not guilty by a reason of mental defect. Uh, for the record, if he had been found not guilty for that reason, he still would have spent the rest of his life in an institution, uh, but uh, the, he was found guilty instead. Um, so he'll be in uh, mental uh, maximum security prison for the rest of his life. Um, but the, the state wanted to put him to death. And he was only saved from death by one juror. There was one juror who said that they didn't want to put him to death because it was clear that he was so severely mentally ill. And what I would ask people is, if you are really going hard on this claim that mental illness never makes people act violently, then what do you do with James Holmes, right? Are you saying that he should have been put to death? Because if mentally ill people never commit acts of violence, then how could that be a reasonable defense for him, right? Um, you never, ever do good for people by lying about the intensity of their problems. And um, the idea, you know, this tendency to try to treat the severely mentally ill as this, like, um, as this class that we want to honor and destigmatize and love um, has a tendency to become, I'm only going to fixate on the most camera ready and uh, easily sympathized with people who suffer from them. It's the opposite of who needs the most help. Like, James Holmes, after murdering 12 people and being in severe risk of being put to death by the state, that's the mentally ill person that needs your sympathy more than anyone. And that's what I worry about is being degraded. I just want to express, and not to be uh, social justice about this, but my immense gratitude um, for your voice in this discourse. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on. Yeah, and I, uh, I'm, you know, I'm going to keep spreading this gospel, and I'm glad, glad that you guys do too. We, I, 
we need people in the field who are resistant to this ideology because um, look, like I, you know, I, I um, do a lot of my research in the field of education and I sort of saw in real time in a span of a decade or a decade and a half, how social justice ideas just completely colonized uh, the education departments and the research and the, and the best pedagogical best practices. So I, I am very afraid of um, people emerging from programs in nursing, from programs in social work, from programs uh, in psychiatric medicine, thinking that like their job is to validate their patients rather than treat them. Um, but I'm, I appreciate you guys and thanks for having me on.